You're listening to Conversion Nations, the podcast that helps conversion optimizers overcome challenges they face with their experimentation programs. Brought to you by Effective Experiments, the workflow and project management software helping optimizers make experimentation a core part of their business. Scale up your testing program with a centralized solution and document all your research, ideas, experiments, and results in one place. Learn more and request your free trial by visiting EffectiveExperiments.com. And now, your host, Manuel DaCosta. Welcome, you're watching Conversion Nations. This is Manuel DaCosta from Effective Experiments, welcoming you again. I'm glad you could join me, and uh, with me today is uh, regular faces. Uh, we've got Tim Stewart. Tim, Hello hey. there. How are we doing? We've got Chad Sanderson joining us again. Hey, Chad. Hey, guys. Hey, good to, good to have you guys back again. We've, we've done a couple of episodes. You guys have gone on to do your own things for, for a little while. And uh, we've had quite a few interesting conversations with other people in the meantime. Uh, but today, I wanted to bring something to the table uh, and see you know what we could discuss about that. So my topic for uh, today's conversation about conversion optimization, <laughs> need to get that right again, <laughs> is, is uh, peer review and experimentation. Uh, and just to add some context there, um, what I've noticed, uh, you know, when people report on ex experiments, uh, they will call test winners or uh, losers or failures, whatever, however they want to um, call it. Um, but all too often I'm seeing that there are issues in their test design or their pre-test analysis and their post-test analysis as well. And what I want to put forward to you guys is, is that something that you see as an issue within the industry? Uh, and let's have a discussion about that. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I kind of, I'll go first. I think we could all do with that anyway. Like whether we're working in a business by ourselves, or, you know, that I think generally in life, it would be helpful to have somebody to have a look over our shoulders and go, yeah, uh, <laughs> Can I just check that for you? Um, in reality, it doesn't happen so much like that. But I think in the process of what we've kind of talked about, experimentation, where we're we're applying a kind of quasi-scientific method approach, um, peer review in science method is is kind of standard. It's not accepted unless it's been independently peer-reviewed. Peer um, it's something I've seen. Uh, I've seen that problem you're describing lots. You know, if somebody else had cast an eye over it, even at the the idea planning stage, then everything that followed down after that would have been better. Um, so quite often the root cause when you go in to try and fix something, because I do a lot of that sort of work, is that they you know, they didn't have somebody going, why? Or do you want to think about that? Or can I just look at this bit? Um, I, on the original research, and the very premise for why they're doing the test. But I think through all the steps, and something which I've kind of implemented a few places now, having that kind of sign-off process. I know, Manuel, we've talked about um, having like a, a racy sort of process in terms of trying to make sure you've got whoever's responsible passing on when you have that from one person to another pass on that's an ideal point to have that sort of check um it just doesn't happen very often because it's seen as a luxury you know you're doubling up you need twice the resource to do it if you've got somebody sure. checking everybody's work but i think the amount of time you save from doing peer reviews for each step as well as a peer review on the final product actually ends up being many times the amount of time that you would have wasted from having just one failed test Chad, what's your take on this? Yeah, so I, I think there's a there's a couple sort of interesting ways to 
look at it. And a lot of it depends on the maturity of the business and kind of where they're at. Um, you could make the argument that if you have a really mature company, they do all sorts of experiments. It's just very, very high velocity that if you introduce a um, like regimented, segmented peer review process that you could be slowing things down significantly enough that the number of experiments that go out of the door actually decrease. And for those big businesses that care more about every single feature that we build, we need to run an experiment on it. It, it, could, it could be harmful. It could slow down their deployment process. I think there's always ways to add a robustness there. Um, but that's one way of looking at it. The other way is I, I, I actually, um, my personal point of view is that I agree with Tim um, so in science, well, specifically in, a, in uh, open science, which is this area of, um, uh, it, it's relatively new. It's been around for a while, but it's starting to gain more mainstream popularity, uh, especially after some of the, the big reproducibility crisis in, in psychology, where if you haven't heard of that before, it's where uh, a lot of these papers and a lot of things that we, we have kind of taken for granted as being uh, uh, research-based, the closest thing to, to facts as we have, they're just generally accepted in the scientific literature. Uh, people have gone back and tried to reproduce those studies with much larger samples, with more robust, uh, robust uh, measuring techniques, and, and it doesn't work. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't reproduce. And that's kind of called into question a lot of those older studies and, and how they were actually uh, peer-reviewed. So this, this thing called open science developed where instead of um, sort of hiding a lot of these research papers behind paywalls, which is kind of the case right now, um, you make them open for everybody to consume. And so that takes away some of the motivation to do p-hacking and some of these other slightly unethical things. Um, and one of the, the aspects of open science is pre-registration. And the concept there is before your experiment actually starts, um, you establish exactly what it is that you want to test, what are the metrics you're going to be observing, how you're going to be measuring those, um, what are the segments you're going to be looking at after the fact, and then you publish it and you make that available before the experiment even finishes. So that people can then go back and say, okay, um, this is what you said you were going to do. Did that match up with what you actually did and the analysis that, that you delivered? Did you actually analyze the things that you said you did or did you sort of go off the beaten path and find some, you know, interesting little tidbits that may have come about through p-hacking or, or something else. That, that's an interesting point. So uh, the, the first thing when you said about these studies that are being invalidated, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, the marshmallow test came under question as well, if you, if you know that one. Yeah. Um, I'm, if I'm if I'm if I'm correct, that that also was uh, was brought into question. But the the uh, the what you said as well, you know, you set your criteria beforehand, and then you set that in stone. And after your test is finished, your experiment's finished, you can refer back to that and say, did that actually match up with what we what we expected? And this is that concern I have because um, this thing if you strangle the data enough, it'll tell you whatever story you do, and with people kind of, you know, creating experiments uh, and then at the end of it, retrospectively trying to justify whatever they wanted out of that experiment is a dangerous trend. Um, and for the for the people in the organization that don't have those, uh, what I like to call like guardrails in place to ensure that this behavior doesn't get rampant, it could lead to all sorts of false falsehoods in experimentation. Like people could just prove whatever they wanted. You know, that segment, which we didn't even uh, look at earlier on, 
is showing the answers we need. That's the one we need to yeah. take on. That, that segment that we didn't plan the sample size for, that segment where we haven't necessarily, we've just found the one, it's, it's your uh, multiple comparison is again, the same as anything else, yep. your family areas. It's your, your, you've got 50 metrics. One of those is going to show a false, false positive just because you've got 50 metrics. Um, yeah, <clears throat> this is kind of, I think Chad's point is very valid. I think it, it kind of depends where you are and what you're trying to do. Like I said, I get called in to kind of fix programs more often than not and the the the, the thing we need to look at is is that they had too many of these have not had what you what we're talking about they haven't planned their measures beforehand they haven't stated what they think they haven't done what i would could be consider a clear hypothesis and when they have they've seen a number at the end of it and gone well ignore what we planned the test for we found something interesting that's our winner and and yeah. so they've had it both ways they've, they've kind of like not defined it properly and then when it gets to the end they've picked the picked the answer they wanted to they've they've tried to fit the narrative they wanted to get off the back of it and that's that's kind of common to tests i think that the thing with peer review and what chap said about the the thing the difference between it being behind a, a paywall or not is that if somebody else looks over that it's not their sacred calf it's not it's not their precious baby it's not the test that they've slaved over they're there with much more kind of hopefully better clarity to kind of go why are you doing this it's not necessarily saying you're wrong it's just challenging somebody saying i don't understand what you're trying to achieve here and if you can't explain to somebody at that point then has it got a strong enough reason to go to test and that that's kind of where I think that's useful. I know, like Chad said, you can have layers and layers, and it's going to be signed off in triplicate. We're not talking about getting this through legal. We're talking yeah. about, you know, it literally needs to be somebody, and it is a peer, somebody at your level. I mean, something I don't want to be kind of like this one time at Bandcamp, but this is very much what we ended up doing at Maximizer. We had a lot of tests going into production because the pressure was on from the customers to kind of go, we want to have 10 tests per month. Why? Because we did five last month and 10 is twice as good. And what happened was that the pressure on a finite amount of resource, both in terms of test planning, test design, like mock-ups and actually test builds, was getting crushed. And I'd say 80, 90% of the tests were getting pushed through for the sake of having this high cadence because lots of tests equals lots of results. Meant that probably 90, 95% of those could have been just chucked away. They were all useless tests to make up numbers so we ended up being the point where we we were being gatekeepers to the client saying look you've got this is your budget you're spending i can advise you on how to to spend it most wisely but if we didn't push back hard enough or we didn't question it we'd then be coming back to the team and going build this and we had literally was just kind of look across the next person's desk and go here's what i'm trying to achieve here's what i'm doing to do that what do you think and somebody who wasn't involved with that client, was aware, but wasn't involved with the client, could look across and go, well, you're telling me you're going to change this lever and expect it to see the result here. What evidence you got for that ever happening in the past? And they go, okay, fine, right. And okay, so this, it would just make you think, oh, perhaps I need to another metric or I need to have something where I need to increase my sample size. Why? Because this subdivision between new and returning is probably going to be the factor that decides on this test. There's a high chance that new and returning will cancel each other out. So it's not just an all customers test, but I've planned it to be a three-week runtime because I'll hit sample in three weeks, but it probably needs to be closer to six because I need to have both new and returning as large enough. And all it took was like a two-minute conversation. We're not talking about, written yep. notes in triplicate you're doing what you're going to do you announce it but you find somebody's got enough awareness to be able to look at what you're doing and give you advice and go cast dry on that without the blinders without, without the, blinders. the blinders without the blinders without and we talked about this in previous ones without the punishment of getting it wrong it's not like if somebody goes no it's a rubbish test you know the the, the 
the point is to go, let me shape that to be closer to what you're trying to aim for. And if that happens at the test planning stage, the research the test selection stage, but also at the design, when you've got your variants and you're going, look, we've got X amount, we've got this much traffic, what's the better balance between number of variants and the time window we've got to build those? And all the way through to that report piece. But that was something which we had to do because we were spending money. It's time was money. And whilst we wanted to go faster, it ended up being that to slow down a little bit, and it was just to have a check, something would come across your desk, you go, yeah, that's got approval to go live. That's five minutes was the check it took. But that was enough to stop tests, which were never, ever, ever going to be buildable, first off, or if they were buildable, easy enough to QA on the devices it's likely to affect, or if they were going to go live, going to report on the thing you're asking for. And if you can stop them at the idea stage or tweak it so that it never makes it past, that's, I mean, we could be talking £15,000 worth of build. Yeah. And so, Manuel, this is actually, um, well, well, both of you guys, I, I guess I would, I actually have a question as well. Um, so at, at Microsoft, this kind of peer review process, or really any um, uh, of the large, I've worked at quite a few enterprise companies, uh, Oracle, Subway, Sephora, it, it, most of those companies, and you have some resources available where you could say, hey, I, I have an experiment. Um, can you check it out and, and tell me what you think? Um, it could be a data science resource. It could be someone just on the marketing team that's knowledgeable enough about testing to kind of look at your idea and say, does this idea make sense? You could have an analyst that can look at it and say, okay, does do, do the metrics that you're looking at make sense? Did you build them in the right way? Um, I think for a lot of smaller companies, smaller to medium-sized businesses, this, this might be a bit of a problem where, and maybe you guys have encountered it, which is why I wanted to ask you, um, do you do you see sometimes where either the it's the agency or it's maybe a smaller group within the organization that has 99% of the knowledge around experimentation and what they're looking for in the first place? Like, do they actually have people that they can get an experiment peer reviewed by? And then if they don't, what would they do in that situation? No, fre- frequently they don't have that kind yeah, of resource. They don't. That that's yeah, what right. I what I'm finding as well. They, so they maybe, don't have that yeah. resource. Maybe you've got one or two people, and if there's two of you, get the other person to check each other's work. It's not the most thorough, but at least is it's that other pair of eyes, and I think that's what makes a difference. I think if you are in a position where you're the sole CRO responsible and you don't have – I'm sure the business will have a BI person or an analyst person, but if you don't have somebody you can access in a timely manner, taking back to your point about like delaying things, Chad, then – you know, get on Slack, jump on Conversion World or Measure Slack or jump on one of the Facebook groups. As you, as we all know, as we answer those questions quite frequently, there's a wealth of knowledge out there. That if you can find somebody in the uh, the CRO community and go, we're thinking about doing this. I want to try and get a measure, uh, an answer on this thing. Here's the approach I'm roughly thinking of doing it. Am I heading in the right direction? And there, there are, you know, it'd be unusual for somebody to point blank go, no, tough, you're not going to happen. It's more likely to be, I can't give you a full answer now, or I don't have time to give it, it'd go into the depth I'd need to understand it properly. But you're going to get pointers. You're going to have people who will, at that stage, throw out some ideas to you where you go, okay, that doesn't give me an answer, but I hadn't thought of that. I perhaps should think this through a bit more. Uh, so if you are on your own, it's tougher. But if you are on your own, you're kind of not on your own because we're all doing this and it's a uh, it's a share economy, isn't it? If I ask your advice next time, Chad, you know, you have more, we can ask each other, kind of go, what do you reckon to this? And 
just find a couple of people who you trust who are different enough to your business that they their outside view is truly outside. They're not just going to be kind of sycophantic to going, oh, yeah, great test. You know, <laughs> oh, brilliant. I wish I could do that. Um, I, I think the, the, the challenge that you want to avoid, though, there's a root issue that we will probably come, come up against, which is the ego of the conversion optimizer, right? And it's, it's the way conversion optimization has been sold in these organizations. And I was having a chat with uh, one of the agencies around, and they were like, when we pitch to prospective clients, we kind of tell them, the uplift that we're going to guarantee them and we're going to tell them the yeah yeah exactly so I, I see your reaction there and that was my reaction as well right how can someone do that and this kind of then filters down into the test design uh, because in the test design if there's ego involved and you know they need to push stuff out to prove a point rather than experiment to learn right and this is that trend i'm trying i'm trying to see how we can break that trend because in my opinion Experimentation is all about learning. And yes, there's a commercial element tied to it. But more importantly than not, we should be experimenting to learn rather than experimenting to prove a point. And how that then filters into peer review is, that's my concern. How are people going to be open to you know putting their tests out there when someone could say, hang on, have you thought about that? And they're like, no, I want to prove that point. I want to get that. I'd, I'd say that that's that's actually fairly simple to to adjust in that if you've got your kind of general hypothesis template and I think it's kind of like you've got your hypothesis if if this were to be the case then we'd see an effect on this metric if this were not to be the case we'd see an effect on this metric in both those cases write a line saying and if that happens here's what we'd do here's the action we will take as a result of that learning understanding so if you want to define whether it's a learning test or a doing test, argue the mix between the two of them. If the answer is we'll implement it immediately because massive win, then that's a slightly different kind of threshold to we'll understand more about how this lever affects the business and it, whether we're going to go left or right at our next choices along the roadmap because we've got a whole set of tests lined up to explore this in more detail before we implement. That's kind of where you sit. But if you just add that that question, you know, if, if – kind of like the follow-on to what the customer does. If we if we change this and the customer's reaction is this, our action off the back of that is X, Y. And if you can if you can answer that question, then you've got a reason for running the test and you've got an idea about how clear you need to be and what you need to be clear on. If you don't know what the customer is supposed to do and you don't know what you're going to do if what you learn is informative or not, kind of why you went in the test in the first place but it makes you think through going well how could we make our test give us that information and if you can restructure it rethink your metrics think about how your variants are supposed to contrast against each other make your variants more um variant <laughs> more, more different um i think seth godin the other day had a blog post going stop doing a b tests start doing a y tests and i was like oh what's this sound like Is he talking about multiple and he was like no a, B are too close together. Make it A, Y. Make them very different. If you're trying to get a direction, choose almost diametrically opposed ones to get a yes, no answer that leads you in a place to go. Um, but the Wasn't someone asking uh, recently on how to test two different, completely different website designs the other day on CXL yeah. or something? I think, like I, think we said, I think we said you can test it. It's, it's a bugger <laughs> to work out what the answer is. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be hard to figure out. Like, 
whether anything's happening because there's so much data and so many different ways that could go. But yeah, that that's yeah. an. Really but but, that, but that's an that's an example of somebody kind of coming think saying so, you know, almost like the peer review at the planning stage, weren't they? They're going to we're thinking about test A B testing the website and pretty much everybody yeah. piled on with some advice. So that would be kind of bring it back to subject for the day. If you aren't in a situation where you've got somebody within your group or within the business who, who supports that group who can give you qualified advice i'm not saying ask your nan do you like the blue one or the red one i mean <laughs> but if you can That's get crazy. somebody if you can give if you can give somebody uh, who can give you qualified advice that's appropriate to what the you're trying to achieve for the business then jump on one of the many online um, groups whatever linkedin facebook slack wherever you prefer to do that where you've got contacts and go we're thinking about doing this what do i need to consider I think there's a there's an educational component here as well, right? So there's uh, part of it is um, you know if you're sort of the central optimization resource, then yeah, I I totally agree. Going to all these um, Facebook groups and LinkedIn groups, it's it's extremely helpful. But I think there's also uh, a need to start building that sort of um, culture of looking at an experiment through a more critical lens, which doesn't always exist. Um, and that could just be a group. It could be, you know, when you when you open this up to the marketing team, for example, and somebody comes up with an experiment, it could be, let's have a 45-minute meeting. Let's bring in the CRO people that we have and the marketing people that we have. And let's just kind of tear the idea apart, not in a negative way, but let's say, okay, does this make sense? Does that make sense? Does, this, does the metric make sense? Did you think about this? Did you think about that? And I find that just doing that over and over and over is going to change the way that a lot of people in that organization start thinking about uh, metric design and start thinking about hypothesis building, especially, and this is kind of the important part, but especially if there's actually some result tied to the end of it. Like when I do this, I generally have better results than when I do not do this. Um, and if you can show that there's some type of causal link there, then you're going to have really good results. That's kind of generally speaking, like there's a lot of, a lot of people try to make process improvements. I try to make process improvements. Um, but what I find kind of across orgs is that people are very reluctant to change process because there's a lot of debt that, that comes along with that. There's, you know, sometimes I have to change my technology. Sometimes I have to, you know, there's other sort of um, waterfall-esque uh, issues that I now have to address because of this change in a process. And so when you're introducing a new meeting like that or introducing some new process where you're saying, okay, now we need to get all of our experiments peer-reviewed, um, usually the first response is going to be something like, well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm doing fine just That's doing it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm already How doing it. You know you're doing fine unless you've had it peer-reviewed. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Well, well, kind of the the result that you would like to see is so we've been running experiments at a particular clip, and we have a five percent success rate or a ten percent success rate. But when we go through this peer review process, that number jumps up to twenty percent. And frankly, if that doesn't happen, then you can kind of ask the question: Is peer review? really helpful, right? If it's not actually moving that number up, then, or it's not making the analysis actually better in some way, then, then is, should we be doing peer review? Is it, is it necessary? And, and to what level? I mean, we, the answer is always, it depends, isn't it? So I think that's a, that's a decent clue. Sorry, Maros, so I was going to, yeah, got so, another point, so I'll come back to mine. Yeah. So just to uh, pick up on that point, Chad, so, you know, is peer review good or bad? Now, someone could say, yeah, we, we've tried peer review and it doesn't work. 
So it's not it, it's not helping us. But we can then we need to peer review the peer review as well because what if we we'll go in, in circles here. But what if the people doing the peer review aren't experienced enough to ask the right questions? So it's more like a box ticking exercise. So the yeah. quality of that peer review itself could hamper or it's, ru- or it's rushed through you know i mean uh, we, we saw this week the uh, game of thrones had the uh, the, the don't coffee spoil it. Don't uh, spoil it. Oh. Had, a, had a coffee cup in there i've not seen it i'm i'm still on series two so. game of thrones is there. long finished we know the end by now people, <laughs> we know the end the, there was except- there was a coffee cup the coffee cup ended up on the iron throne um but you know that that's a classic example of you know they've got set dressers they've got people on site they've got all the directors and producers in the the video room watching the footage as it's filmed they've got continuity experts they've got producers they've got sfx people who come in afterwards 40 50 people saw that clip and didn't spot a coffee cup on the table you know then that's but that's because they've all got their peer review steps they've all got their process for the thing they care about so this kind of brings it back to the point i was going to follow on from what chad said which it's kind of he raised a good point which is a bit of a campaign point we've all been making previously is that we're talking about getting this embedded in the org so whilst at its simplest level yes do a peer review speak within your team kind of sense check what you're going to do it prevents failures i quite often see like chad's talking about like we get five percent success rate with uh, without peer review 20 percent success rate with i'm taking it to a step before that we see more tests actually make it live that's the stage where quite often i see kind of peer review making a difference not in terms of number of successful tests and outcomes because that's almost a different piece and depends on your situation but if you never get the test live or it goes live and the data is junk then that's never ever going to be concluded successful or fail. It just never made it, but it's still a cost. It blocks up your roadmap, et cetera. So quite often the peer review is most valuable, not at the interpreting stage, but actually if you've done it properly at the planning stage and at the the briefing and the, the, the planning stage, um, you'll get it worked through. And that ties back to something Chad's kind of been um, key to kind of bang the drum on for the last couple of times is if you are going to have that, and if you're lucky enough to get 45 minutes with marketing, we're trying to relate it to things they care about. So if we go back to my point about what action are you going to take, if you can show to them, I want your opinion, why? Because I'm doing this test to learn something to help you with your goal, and they turn around and go, how can I use that information? Like it's a learning test, but I can't see in my what you're learning. word what you're learning yeah. and therefore how I could action that. That in itself tells you that although it's a good CRO test for, with what you've got in mind, it doesn't in itself answer the question that the people who you're doing it for and who you'd like to adopt and have them generate ideas could do. So it kind of helps shape both ways. Not only are you helping them with triaging their own ideas before they come and bring them in to submit them, and shape them so they're better ideas, so less work needs to be done, so their their gap between idea and getting it through the CRO team is faster. But actually, you're learning about how better to shape tests for different parts of the business. And that's where it's it's a side benefit, if you want, to what we're talking about here in terms of peer review. We're trying to make sure it's it's a correctly formatted experiment to answer the, the, the question in the way we want for the method we're using. But we're doing it whether it's for learning or it's outright, you know, directly uh, affecting outcomes, we're doing it to help the business. And we want the wider business to have that mentality. We've talked about culture to a blue in the face. This is actually another one of those touch point opportunities where, as Chad said, it's a learning experience, but that, that goes both ways. 
It's not just learning for them going, you must do it this way, otherwise it's not a proper test. It's also a learning experience for them to see it's not as simple as idea live. There's a process yeah. that takes this planning stage is critical and measure the thing we want to measure where we only care about revenue. It's not as simple as that because revenue has got married in many different flavors in terms of, you know, where's your margin on that? Where, you know, what's lifetime value? What's the effect? What's the difference between? And as soon as you start asking marketing these things, saying which is most important for the decision you want to make, they start realizing it's not as simple as all that to do the test you talked about. And then they start going, actually, be really useful to know AOV. And you go, well, I'd need to plan an AOV test then, but this lever is not likely to affect that in a way that will show, let me rethink where this sits. And so that back and forth process, if you are in that sort of scenario, it's not just the one man CRO team, one person CRO team, it's also useful for the wider thing we keep talking about, which is engagement with the business, but also educational on both sides. Because the better CROs are not doing tests to hit their test per month target or their nominal CR target rate. They're doing them because that CR target rate relates to the thing they're trying to move for the business, which relates to the overall business plan, which is what answers the how valuable is my CRO part, show your ROI question we keep coming up against. So it may seem like peer review is a waste of time. It may seem like it's another layer of process, but actually, to me, it's another symptom of growing a CRO program the better way because you are artificially kind of with this as your excuse to talk to them insinuating your way into their planning and their thinking and getting them to shape your CRO program to suit the business, not just some elusive CRO ideal program that's divorced from what the business actually needs. Yeah. I so and and I've I've done this a few times. So I've kind of tried to start this uh, either a culture of peer review or some um, series of meetings where people can talk about these ideas. And, And one of the things that I see happen pretty consistently, um, like Tim was saying, is that it actually opens up much broader conversations just beyond experimentation. Um, you start When you start having a conversation, like you mentioned about, uh, about revenue or about metrics, and you say, okay, um, so you want to measure conversion rate. Well, does that really make sense for what the business is trying to achieve? Shouldn't we be measuring revenue? It's like, well, well wait a second. Should we really be measuring revenue or should we be measuring profit? Because there's a, there's a likelihood we could increase revenues and we could decrease profits depending on what we're selling. It's like, okay, well, should we really be increasing profit? Remember, we're just running this experiment over two weeks. So should we just want to do we just want to increase profit over the two weeks or should we should we aim to do something more long term over a year do we want to make sure this is a permanent improvement well that's lifetime value well we don't have a measure for lifetime value well how would we get that right and so it opens up a, a lot of conversations not just around um that particular test but around how do we even think about measuring some of the things that we want to impact later on and it can change a lot of minds in marketing in terms of what's important like when you have someone who's measuring a marketing campaign or an email campaign by like number of emails open, that's a really common one, or number of clicks through or something like that. Having those conversations can change the way people uh, within the organization think about analyzing uh, other marketing campaigns. Well, is opening an email enough? Is that actually representative of the goal that we want to accomplish? Why is Um, that good? Why why is that actually a good thing? Just keep asking them. Okay, that's good. Thanks. Tell me, why is that good? Yeah. Every chance you get. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's no. That's 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 exactly it. And and so I think that these. um, It's it's funny. I was. I think we were talking about this a little bit on the last um, call that the three of us were on. Um, And it's that I I I personally feel that CRO is at this really interesting 
sort of unusual intersection in the business where there's a lot of things that we do that apply specifically to experimentation um, because experimentation is a very scientific field and it's now applying scientific practices to an otherwise a very unscientific way of, of looking at data. And from that, we can kind of expand science to, there's an opportunity to expand science to other places. And the ROI on that can sometimes be even higher than doing the experiments in, in the first place. And I think there's, there should be a way of, of measuring that as well. So sort of having an, metadata is kind of an ongoing uh, an ongoing theme is something I, I still uh, kind of struggle with, but how do you, and, and it, well, here's a question for you guys that I would like to know, um, but uh, I, I kind of have a bit of an answer, but we've sort of been talking about, you know, you're doing peer review and what's the result of it. And like Tim, you're saying, you are you increasing uh, velocity? And there's uh, obviously some other, some other things that you could change from that process as well. How do you go about measuring that and showing that impact to people? Is it just um, measure the amount of, of experiments that you run and kind of end it there? Or like, what is your process of developing a measurement system around the peer review process or around sort of the cultural changes that are, that are, you're trying to, in, uh, trying to change? Well, this is, I don't think Manuel can answer this one because he's got a vested interest. You use a tool <laughs> that helps you organize your program management. And um, that tool gives you an idea, not just total number of tests, but number of tests you've got on which part of the roadmap. And ideally, you've got time between you know, initiating idea and getting live, your lead lag time. These are classic project management challenges. So mm -hmm. how do you quantify you know, measurable difference time? It's time between how much effort did it take, how much manpower did it take, um, how many times did it go through uh, design uh, reiterations, how many times did it come in and out of QA, for what type of reasons, was that less, uh, did we have fewer browser compatibility issues than last time, did we have fewer problems setting up the metrics this time because we set up our metrics that should suit all tests on this template three tests ago, so our initial investment in that means that we're now cranking through these type of tests faster. You need some... So who, who does that, Tim? Like, who would you, who would you say records those measurements? Uh... I would say the conversion optimizer themselves need I to think, have... I think, the, yeah, the, the, ideally you've got a system where as the people work, they're logging these pieces of metadata that the conversion optimizer looks at the, the holistic whole, but they mm -hmm. depends on how the business is set up, but it's very unlikely that the conversion optimizer is also in charge of the dev team, is also in charge of the project management team, is also in charge of kind of QA resource. It's more likely that they talk to them and they may or may not have access, actually direct access to their systems and their reports. But the ideal would be to have whatever the project management system is that they've got, the data on this sort of stuff, time between it landing, time between it not landing, any confounding factors. Because obviously sometimes you may go, our test went live slower this month. Why? Because we're waiting five days long for the dev. Why? Because some other project took the people. That's nothing to do with how well we work this month, but mm. it still has an effect on the overall program. But if you were just reporting top line tests per month, it looks like the CRO team has gone backwards, but actually what they've done is they've filtered them through. Now you can, if you're keeping enough granular detail on the CRO side, explain the whys, and if you're clever, tweak your roadmap to fit. So if you're looking at the project management plan and the devs are snowed under for a month and you don't have an alternative to go to, there's no outsourcing you can use, then you can go, well, we can either stop, we can sit behind this big rock in the stream that's our next big test that must go live, or we can go, that rock is never making it through that narrow funnel, shift it to one side, let's pick up some of these not as valuable but useful pebbles which help 
teaches what the next rock needs to be, or maybe break this rock into four smaller pieces, which is not the ideal test setup, but at least gets through in the period we're trying to test in. Because if we don't get this question answered before September, then there's no point having this test at all. Um, so that kind of sits with the CRO in terms of they have to run their roadmap and they have to run their roadmap in accordance to the business needs, the available resources, the available dev resources, and you know, market conditions. They may have 15 tactical tests they have to get out this month, which stop their big one. They need to have the argument there. Um, very few companies have that level of project management tracking. If you've got a program management tool, naming no names, but ones beginning with E are preferred, um, then then that helps give you the sight of that. And I think for me, that's more or as valuable in terms of money as having this resource base and this knowledge base piece because although that speeds up the resource and the planning side of it and it helps onboarding new people if we're trying to improve our process if we're trying to optimize our optimization you need to track that and the better you do that you can put pounds and pence dollars and cents onto that value in a month and it because the costs you have in making these mistakes going back in and out of qa not getting the test live when you could have done putting a test live that doesn't answer the question that marketing want, having to run a second test, you've doubled your cost. Whereas yeah. a 10-minute conversation with marketing saying, would this answer your question, finding out no, spending half a day changing the plan, another 10-minute conversation going, yes, that would, and then getting that test live could save you a whole test, which is then able to bring something else from the roadmap forward. So this is exactly kind of what I was alluding to a little while ago when I was talking about you know, how do we – how do we influence uh, better peer review at these organizations? Like what you've just said is, uh, if it were me and and I wasn't a, a someone who's been doing CRO and experimentation for a while, uh, you just made a pretty compelling case to 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 do this because there's a there is a direct uh, uh, cost saving. There's there's a dollar sign attached to it at the end of the day, and if you can, and I oftentimes I find uh, at least uh, what what I see within the CRO community very often is because we know what we should be doing, and we kind of know what the best practices are, and we know uh, oftentimes what the best processes are, then we bring that verbally to management and say, you know, this is what we should be doing and and here's why. Whereas if you what you bring to them is, hey, look, this is everything that we measured and this is where we could be saving a lot of if we fix this number, we have, you know, one out of every four tests after we launch it needs to be paused and restarted because a metric is broken. Mm -hmm. or or whatever or because the design is broken and this is the amount of of in dollars and cents that that costs us that we could otherwise be be saving you've just created a a pretty a great um uh, a pretty great reason for anyone to to want to begin that process especially management like hey we're yeah. we're actually losing fifty thousand dollars a year in wasted yeah. tests not not counting the opportunity cost of moving not slower. Counting the you know, cost. So, but yeah. this is this is how you have to and this is kind of off topic for today sorry manuel but this is kind of why these things i think are useful not just because there's a fear that somebody in you know uh, a CRO meeting in 10, 10 weeks time will go, you tested that wrong. And you kind of the egg on your face cost, which is the ego point Manuel was raising is the smallest cost of all. Wear that egg. I make mistakes daily. Wear that egg, learn from it. But it's this kind of uh, backward step for the whole of the CRO program. If you are able to speak to management in a way that gets you 
you know, the buy-in and speaking a language they understand and they're worried about people's jobs, growth, financing. So you have to talk in those languages. You have to say, I've seen a problem. Here's my proposed solution. The cost is this, the benefits are this, decision time. And if it's presented in that way with numbers you can back up, that's what the board's supposed to do. And if they can't make the decision, you go, are you happy for me to make the decision? They go, well, you've obviously done the research. You go off and make the call. Whichever way the business is structured, that gives you more of a buy-in. And I, I'm saying the same thing for marketing, for devs. Don't treat it as a confrontational piece. Go back to them and say, dear Mr. Dev, you've got this plan on the roadmap. I can see your roadmap's choked with feature one. This test is actually to see if there's any user buy-in for the current feature version of that feature. We're going to do an exclusion test. We're going to take it away for three weeks and put it back on. And then we're going to see. Because you could spend $600,000 building this over the next six months because it's on the roadmap. Our analytics says nobody uses it at the moment. Your sales pitch to do this is that, well, when we've got a good one, they will. Well, let's see kind of how big a hill you've got to climb with this because I don't think a new set of shiny baubles on feature that nobody uses is going to make that suddenly the most used feature. Can we test this? And they, I can mentioned see, that exactly in, in, they can see six months of their, their roadmap suddenly getting freed up for their other massive backlog items. And they will go, I'm interested, tell me more. But if you go yeah, to them, exactly it'll save you 30 quid. Lots of others. I gave Sorry. an example in, in, a, in episode two, actually, of, uh, when I was speaking to Alex and speaking to devs when I was consulting. And they were going through this whole redesign uh, of their checkout process. And we saw, you know, the the what small tweaks that could have could save them time, which would, you know, the whole rebuild of their, their checkout would take them months on end and, you know, saving them time having those conversations with them. So for people that haven't watched or listened to that episode, go back to episode two and you can listen to that for the conversation as well. Yeah, two, that series is, two. That's, yeah. Series two. Season two. Season two. Yeah. The revenge. Season. So another another quick example of that 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 I, I find um, a lot of people miss, but just since we're we're using some practical examples now, and I see this this happens all the time at Microsoft is uh, and obviously elsewhere as well, but um, even at a very um, uh, mature um, organization is, and this is a, a a dev issue, but oftentimes people will build an experiment like uh, that is that is conditional on something else happening. So, for example, at Bing, um, maybe somebody wants to to run a test on um, the algorithm, the 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 piece of the Bing algorithm that affects like movie times or something like that, right? Um, and so, when they're designing the measurement for that, this is this is where a lot of the mistakes happen, because you need to have some mechanism to filter your data after the fact that lets you see only the people who you think should be in the experiment. And in the case of Bing, that it could be some sort of trigger condition, like um, did the person have uh, movie times in their search query? But it could be many other things besides movie times, right? Like maybe you just type in the name of the movie you want to see. Like I type in Avengers Endgame and, you know, maybe that I, because I've used that feature in the past, I know that that brings up all the local showings near me. So I can't exclude, I can't exclude that. And I, so I need to have a way of saying every time um, this particular part of the UX shows, um, I, need to, I need to have a way of including that variable in my experiment. And oftentimes what doesn't happen is, or, or, or devs will go back and realize, oh crap, I didn't actually program a way for us to capture this variable existing. And so now I need to go back and rebuild it 
and then run the experiment again. Um, and you know, and who knows how much of a cost that is, especially when you're a company like Microsoft and you have, you know, trillions of, of data points, there's like a, a literal physical cost to that because they're not using it and optimizing it or something else. Or you, or you run it and it means rather than being two days worth of analysis, it ends up being three weeks of kind of piecing stuff together, trying to approximate what you could have done if you'd measured it in the first place. Which is even more work. <laughs> which is even, oh yeah, trust me, I'm, I'm. I'm still just finishing off a project which has taken months of my life for like if they'd just measured it properly uh, I wouldn't have had to do this but it's it's important enough we need to stitch this so kind of my good enough version is still taken yeah 20 man days to get sorted and it kind and that's of that's that's especially true when you consider who's actually doing the stitching you know like um like in in the case of Microsoft again not so much in the case of like a subway or a sephora but in the case of Microsoft because that's a really complex thing then they're going to get a data scientist to do that and that data scientist is making $300,000 a year. And so you got to imagine that an hour of their time or three days of their time is worth a huge amount of money to the business that they, they could be spending it on something that actually means something. Mm. Um, uh, you know, in, in some cases, you might have a whole team if you're a smaller company that has to, has to work on that. Or you might have a, an analyst that's paid a little bit less, but they have to work on it for a week or something like that. So yeah, the Tim's yeah. point, that's a, that's, so that's a, a classic. I mean, obviously that's, that's kind of a big company example, but a, a more common so classic example is, um, when people have got kind of like, uh, did this, did this change increase, uh, how many people took finance? Okay. Uh, quite a common thing when you've got an e-commerce store finance we want to have more people buying on finance why because it's it it goes up our aov goes up when finance is used but then not every product qualifies for finance yeah so or not every product if you're doing or what's it increased or add to cart not every product's in stock if you haven't got these pieces set up as to what's in stock wasn't in stock then there are ways after the fact we can go through you can get a lookup list of things with finance that customer might have done you can go through and get a list of stuff that was in stock whilst that test was extant or whatever but that can take three, four days to get that data and still have a degree of inaccuracy. Or you could spend an extra possibly half day making sure that you've got tagging in place that you can see in stock, not in stock, finance available, not available. And then the report within the engine, and I don't care what tool it is, should be able to report include or exclude, even if you don't have the ability within your engine to go, don't even show the test. If they're not seeing a finance-worthy page, don't count them in audience, reduce the noise. Sometimes you don't have that choice with the tool. But this sort of peer review questions, this sort of stuff where we used to call it like teacher checking your homework, you know, here's my stuff, have a look. Those are the sort of questions. You only need that one question. And it doesn't need to be rip the entire plan apart, start again. We're still aiming to go, here's what I want to achieve for the test. Here's the reasons why for the business. Here's what the customer should see and, and the user should do as, a, as a, a result of that. And the action we're going to take as a result of is, and then somebody goes, per your example, have they ever searched for movies before? Are they used to it? Are they on a different device? Or you know, we're trying to see if this improves finance uptake. What's our baseline? Can we tell you if finance during that period has changed? If more products are looked at that were finance available, is that in itself self is that in itself self-selecting an audience that we hadn't accounted for in the planning? And it only takes one person to ask that one difficult bugger line to go, ah, I had a plan. I now need to replan. But the point is that that change has probably saved you three four five days work three weeks worth of work what's the cost difference Another or maybe day. even more than that right because that could just it could just it, it may not just be the work it may just it may be the result as well yeah. like 
Um, I'll, one 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 more example I'll I'll give just to maybe give some people in the audience some ideas of how they can ask these questions at peer reviews. But uh, this happens a lot when, when we're doing uh, algorithmic experimentation. We did this at uh, at uh, Sephora. So anytime you've got a search box and there's some rules that have are happening behind the search that are determining like what is the order that we show items based on what that person typed in. Um, one thing that I, I've I've seen, and there's there's oftentimes a lot of types of experimentation on what happens when in search, um, is our search algorithm better? Like that's a, that's a big one. Like you know, I'm using a vendor versus I'm using something that we built in house, and do are we generating more money that way? Um, one of the one of the big one of the big uh, issues that I see that happens here with a lot of experiments is that there's no counterfactual logging, and what that means is when I let's say I search for um, I, I don't know. I search for Nike shoes or something on the original uh, 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 on the on the uh, new search engine, um, and I get a, a certain string of results. Well, how different are those results compared to the ones that I would have gotten? on the old uh, search engine, right? Because imagine that uh, sometimes search engines do populate things that are very similar. So imagine that I, I get a result that's exactly the same. Should I even be counted in that experiment? Um, because there's really, there's literally no difference to what I would get in, in either one of these. Really, I'm, I'm just a member of the control at that point. And so if you don't take those users out, they get the exact same thing, then you're looking at a, a sort of um, watered down effect of your treatment. You really only want to focus on the people that would have gotten something different uh, if they typed in the same search. That's how you would see the effect of, of that algorithm. And again, if you don't if you don't measure that, or you don't, or nobody ever asked the question like, "Hey, are you are you doing this?" Then you could have a you could have a winning treatment where the effect just gets really muted by all these other people that are not affected by it. And again, I mean, it's very true. And the counter, the counter argument is if you haven't done that, you kind of don't know how big the effect is. So you could narrow down to the perfect audience with the least or the best signal to noise and the least noise that's going to distract you from what the question is you're trying to answer. And those three people will be very grateful that you did so because it's going to have an effect on the sample size. You need to see kind of where that fits in the hole. If, if we're making changes where for 70% of returns, there's actually no visible difference. But actually, for the 30% that we're trying to narrow down, and there is, then the effect on the business, not the test effect size, but the impact size, should we say, is not going to be as big as the projected. And I think that's where a lot of people fall down on, on their kind of like, we saw an increase of 7% on add to carts, and therefore we're going to say 7% up next month. And it's like, yeah, but you only tested on pages where add to carts were had potential to go there's only so many washing machines i'm going to buy this week <laughs> but there's a lot more things that are kind of insert other good that's bought in large quantities plates that i might buy more frequently and so yeah. there's that kind of uh, i know we say you get enough data you can normalize this stuff and the signal to noise is something we like to optimize to to, to make the answer clearer but these are the sort of things that a peer review will pick up because it is your baby. You get focused on the, I want to do it my way, the CRO ego. And that's kind of the, the message or kind of the, the moral for this podcast is park your ego. It's actually good when somebody throws your test, your, your precious test into the weed because you kind of didn't think of something. Be yeah. glad you didn't run that test without having that question asked. If somebody comes in and cannot challenge anything substantial about your test principle, agrees with the idea, maybe adds an idea that enhances and enriches it but doesn't spoil the overall pat, that's further confirmation. So actually feel good. Your ego gets a pat. But 
don't be scared of having that challenge. I, you know, relish that challenge, welcome that challenge. But I think sometimes we need to kind of go outside of our box of CROs and go, let's get marketing who don't know how to say this nicely. Let's get, you know, the the sales team who don't know how to say this, don't care. They just want to know their bottom line. Are my leads going to go up? Can I make sure those leads are going to buy same day? Because that's what my bonus is based on and get them to challenge you and then educate back, you know, there's no test will do that for you, Mr. Sales Guy. Why don't you pick up the phone when the lead comes in? Oh, I don't know about that. So these, these conversations need to happen in businesses, and we're always talking about bringing down silos. But I think, you know, classic example is we need to just kind of have somebody question us. And if that is just send it to Manuel on, on Facebook Messenger or Slack because he loves this sort of question, um, <laughs> we can we can check it for you. But if you can, pass it across the desk to somebody. Oh, just quite similar coming through now. <laughs> <laughs> just put it in the LinkedIn comments there, just down there. Like, dear Manuel, yeah. I'm doing this test. Um, but now we'll figure something else out for this. I think I have an idea from where we can go with with this peer review thing. So by the time this episode is out, look at the show notes somewhere down below, and we'll we'll have figured something out by then. See, I've got uh, my I've got my videos stacked. So like, you're on the top and Chad's on the bottom. So yeah, but it'll just be one video. It'll just be one video. The I know. Way it's, so it'll be down there somewhere. Um, people listening on audio are like, well, what's this video are they on about? Yeah, we're pointing. All the hand waving completely lost the audio version. Sorry. Yeah, yeah it's quite expressive. We right, we're going to have to wrap up over here because, um, you know, we can go on talking about all, uh, this peer review for a long, uh, you know, hours on end. But let's uh, get, you know, let's draw a line here. We'll, we'll come back to it. I'm certain we'll come back to it and, you know, addressing this and even something that I want to touch on in a, in a future episode, quality scoring those experiments in line with those peer reviews as well, which might add some quantified number to it. But that's for another episode. Everyone listening and watching, thank you for joining us. Uh, Tim, uh, pleasure as always having you on the, sh- on the show with your Cheers, long guys. cast. And uh, Chad, um, thanks for joining uh, us today to you know, sharing your insights on this as well. Uh, you've been listening to Conversion Nations. Uh, my name is Manuel da Costa. For our previous episodes, check out our website, effectiveexperiments.com, or we're also available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, which you might be listening to on right now. But thanks for listening and watching. Bye for now. You've been listening to Conversion Nations. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when we release new updates. Conversion Nations is brought to you by Effective Experiments. Want to make experimentation a core part of your business? Request your demo and let us show you how we can help you grow your testing program.